Good morning, Covenant College. You're looking well this morning. It's good to see you. Uh, this morning, we're going to hear another installment in our faculty chapel series, Dangerous Ideas. Next speaker in our series is the dangerous uh, Dr. Jeff Dryden from the, from the Ever Dangerous Biblical and Theological Studies Department. Uh, as a community, we spent considerable time over the past month reconnecting to our historic ties with the legacy of Francis Schaeffer and being reminded of the many ways that our values and convictions are shared uh, with his. Uh, this is especially true when thinking about the ways his vision has been lived out through the ministry uh, of hospitality, conversation, and discipleship associated with uh, Labrie Fellowship. It's appropriate in this light that we should hear this morning from Dr. Dryden, who represents our strongest current link to the vision of Labrie. While working on his PhD in New Testament studies at Cambridge University, he and his family worked and lived at Labrie in England. Uh, Dr. Dryden has enriched our community by bringing many of the convictions and sensibilities of Labrie with him to his teaching and to his relationships uh, with faculty and students. Dr. Dryden has been on faculty at Covenant since 2007, teaching primarily classes in New Testament and Greek. He is husband to Heather and dad to Willem and Molly. They live in the St. Elmo neighborhood of Chattanooga and are members of St. Elmo Presbyterian Church. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jeff Dryden. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I want to wish you all a happy Columbus Day. Uh, only in America would we celebrate someone who discovered the Bahamas. Um, so, uh, and think that he discovered America. Um, I, uh, I'm here to talk about a dangerous idea. Um, and I, I do kind of like dangerous ideas, so I think part of what Jay said there was right about me. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to begin with a, uh, a reading from, am I in the right place? Uh, Luke 9, short little story from Luke 9. And as they were going along, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that text in just a minute. Um, but first, my dangerous idea. Uh, I find the dangerous idea, the, the adjective dangerous, highly ambiguous, although I enjoy it. Um, something that's dangerous is something that's threatening. And so a dangerous idea Often we think of them as like cultural ideas that come from the world outside that threaten us in terms of our Christian faith and identity. But a dangerous idea could also be an idea that threatens something that actually needs to be threatened, something that needs to be 
questioned. In the Bible, the righteousness of God and the grace of God are ideas that are supposed to be threats to our individual and collective autonomy, sin, and complacency. So some ideas can be dangerous in a good sense. Secretly, those are my favorite ideas, although I guess it's no longer a secret. So today I want to talk about a dangerous idea, but a dangerous idea in the bad sense. Uh, but it's not an idea that comes from our culture, an idea that comes from outside, but a dangerous idea that's actually common in the Christian world. And that dangerous idea that I want to talk about today is the belief that Jesus is reasonable. When we read the Gospels, we discover a Jesus who embodies many traits, uh, but if we're honest, being reasonable isn't one of them. Jesus isn't reasonable. He often makes unreasonable demands and sets unreasonable expectations for people. Now, before you freak out too much, um, I don't mean to say that Jesus is irrational, uh, that he's just a crazy person who's bizarrely unpredictable and spins the wheel of impossible demands just to drive us crazy. Um, but what I'm trying to, what I want to get at today is this, in a context like ours, where we emphasize the rationality of our faith as something that can be explored and defended rationally, there's a danger of a very easy transition from us saying that our faith is something rational to saying, and God will always be reasonable with me. Those are not the same idea. One of my favorite scenes in the Gospels is actually uh, a scene of Jesus asleep in the stern of a boat. And he's surrounded by spastic disciples, right, who are facing imminent death uh, from a vicious storm on the Sea of Galilee. And some of the disciples shake Jesus awake and they asked him, with no small note of sarcasm and urgency, don't you care if we die? And so Jesus gets up, and after he tells the storm to shut up, and the wind dies down, he looks at his disciples and he says, why don't you have any faith? Do you think Jesus is being reasonable there? Is that a reasonable thing for him to say? I think the disciples are much more reasonable. Maybe it's just me. Okay, maybe you're a little holier than I am. Uh, but the disciples look more reasonable than Jesus to me there, right? So, uh, the word reasonable, when we talk about something being reasonable or a person being reasonable, we really mean two different things that are kind of sewed up in that word. The first is this idea of, oh, something's reasonable because it's like rationally coherent. It makes sense. It's reasonable. But we also mean it, especially when we talk about it with people, of this idea of someone being fair with us, recognizing, you know, that you're not treating me in a way that seems fair. You're not being reasonable. You know, I did this for you. Why don't you do that for me? Or I was here first. Don't take that last donut. That's mine. Be reasonable. That kind of thing, right? 
I think that sometimes, again, because our faith is reasonable in the first sense of being rationally coherent, we can assume it's also reasonable in the second. When we do this, God can become very quickly the means for making our lives work the way we want them to. Uh, And we don't need to question all of the expectations for our lives that our wider culture and even the Christian culture has given us, which are that our lives will work, that our lives will be reasonable, that we won't have to endure major tragedies, major failures, major sacrifices, or major challenges to our spiritual growth. We view these expectations as reasonable, and that if God is reasonable, he will provide them for us. This, in reality, is just the decaf version of the health and wealth gospel. A more reasonable one, perhaps. And if we think this applies to someone else, we're being self-deceived. This belief is deep in our bones. And if you don't think you believe that, uh, wait for tragedy to hit your life. And you'll find out how quickly you think that God has promised you something. So if we go back to that passage that I started off with in Luke 9, we see three people who come to Jesus as potential disciples, right? Uh, None of them pass the test, okay? The first is not actually called by Jesus, but says, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. Sounds good. Um, Jesus' response to him is a pushback. It's intentionally cryptic, as Jesus often is, uh, especially on people he's trying to push back. Um, But actually, there's a clear message here. Okay? This is what Jesus says, right? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, it kind of sounds like what Jesus is saying is, look, you need to be ready to live in the rough, uh, you know, live out in the wild. We're not going to be staying in any hotels. Um, you know, you, you need to rough it if you're going to come with me. Um, Jesus is getting at something a little deeper than that. His real point is that this potential disciple has an expectation of where it is that Jesus is going to take him. Okay? This disciple, like 99.9% of all Jews uh, at the time, connected the Messiah with the glorious future of Israel led by this Messiah King. Uh, and so this, this disciple offers himself in the reasonable assumption that following Jesus will have a material payoff and some type of future security. Jesus tells them that birds and foxes have more material security than he has and that he will offer to anybody else. In the end, all that Jesus really promises us is himself. The second disciple is different from the first in that Jesus actually calls him to follow him as a disciple. Uh, his response to Jesus is perfectly, is a perfectly reasonable yes, but his father has died and he needs to go and bury him. Sound reasonable? After that, he'll come and follow. So, personally, as a professor, I would allow this as an excused absence. Okay. Um, if your dad dies and you need to go home, 
you know, uh, that's, that, uh, yeah, you, you don't need to come to class, okay? Um, Jesus, on the other hand, is unreasonable. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's not really a workable solution, right? Unless you've got, unless some of the dead are zombies who always wanted to be grave diggers or something like that, um, which seems unlikely and is probably not the best way to read this passage. Uh, it's probably not what Jesus is talking about, right? In the end, Jesus revokes his call and commands this potential disciple to go and preach. The third disciple is certainly the most reasonable of the bunch. He wants to follow Jesus, but he just needs to go say goodbye to his friends and family. Does that sound unreasonable? What's Jesus' response? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Come on, Jesus, be reasonable. Seriously, what is your problem? Passages like this are just confusing, aren't they? Uh, what is Jesus doing? In some sense, it's obvious that he's raising the bar on what our commitment looks like. At the same time, it starts to feel like he's giving impossible demands just to confuse and confound us. Worse yet, in this last verse, it starts to sound like Jesus is saying that unless we have an absolute devotion 100% of the time to him, that we aren't real Christians. So what is going on? I think another passage might help us. Um, the passage in John 6, another one of my favorites, is a place where Jesus is being a bit unreasonable. Um, Jesus is being followed by a huge group of disciples who all ate at the Feast of the 5,000, um, uh, which is at the beginning of John 6. And at the end of John 6, you have this whole crowd of people uh, who come and follow Jesus as disciples. But it's not really clear whether or not they want to be real disciples or they just want another free lunch. Whether they are devoted to him or simply there for what Jesus might give them. And here's how the scene goes. This is what Jesus says. He talks about this bread of life. Jesus starts talking about himself as the bread of life, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Okay? Talking about um, in the period, you know, post-Exodus in the wilderness. And they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And this is what you see with Jesus all the time. Uh, often is somebody cracks a door open and Jesus kicks it in. Um, you know, they're kind of like, well, what about this? And Jesus um, and here's what happens. Uh, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So, who wants to get in line to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood? 
Um, so there's some sense in which we could, go, looking back, say Jesus is speaking in some sense sacramentally here, uh, but it's also clear that he's purposely speaking in a way that's inflammatory, cannibalistic, uh, and unreasonable. And he's pushing his followers to actually make a choice. And John tells us that, quote, many of his disciples heard it and said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Not even who can understand it. It's like, who can't even listen to this? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, is what John says. Jesus' unreasonableness clarifies devotions. This can be seen, in, not just in that scene, in the short scene that follows, you have, uh, as the masses are walking away from Jesus, he turns to the twelve and asks them, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's response is beautiful in its simplicity. We'll stay with you because you're the only source of life. Where else would we go? Peter's still probably freaked out about the whole cannibalism thing. And he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. But he says, I don't have anywhere else to go. Okay? I don't understand what you're talking about, but you are the only source of life. This is the biblical example, a biblical example, of faith that trusts in the person of Jesus with the realization that there is no other source of life. Jesus' unreasonableness frees us, actually, from the idolatries where Jesus is assimilated with other sources of life that are more reasonable, and where Jesus becomes a means of our own self-actualization or the means of my securing the American ideal of a reasonably happy life. Jesus is actually trying to free us from those things. Okay? The solution to that tension, though, isn't simply to say that self-actualization and a happy, secure life are bad things or that we shouldn't want them or enjoy them if we have them. What Jesus confronts us with is the demand that we seek him for himself as our chief desire. And his only and most profound promise is that he will give himself to us. But the danger is that we'll simply add Jesus as another good thing in our lives or make him the means of all the other good things that I desire. This is why he tells people to lay all those goods aside when they come to him. This is why he can be so unreasonable. Now, this Jesus' unreasonableness, it makes me uncomfortable. Okay? It's, it's not supposed to make us feel comfortable. Um, and if you're still hesitant about accepting Jesus' unreasonableness, then you need to remember something really important. Our whole salvation depends upon it. If Jesus were reasonable, then we would be without hope. Uh, this is Paul's point in Romans 5. He says this, 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now will be reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul says that it might be reasonable for someone to dare to die for a good person or a righteous person, but Jesus did the unreasonable thing in dying for us while we were still sinners. This is the demonstration of the extent of the gracious love of God towards us, that when we were his enemies, he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. The grace of God is not irrational because it is consistent with his character, but it is, in a very real sense, unreasonable. Part of our conception, again, of reasonableness is our sense of fairness shown in a relational reciprocity, okay? So if I'm nice to you, I have a reasonable explanation that you'll be nice to me in return. And maybe actually feel a bit put off or disappointed when you don't do that. And I feel justified in feeling that way. Grace is the principle that upsets this whole thing across the board. God does not treat us as we deserve. The Bible is clear that if God acted in this mode, then none of us would have any hope. But the love of God does not act in this way, treating us according to what we deserved, but treating us as sons and daughters through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, our elder brother. Jesus goes further than this, though, and applies this to all ethics and gives us the unreasonable command to love not just the folks who are nice to us, but our enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us. And he justifies this ethical stance by pointing to the grace of God, not only providing salvation that is undeserved, but in God's continual provision of life and well-being for those who don't recognize him and continue to live in rebellion against him. It's just who God is. In this way, Jesus marries his unreasonable call to wholehearted allegiance and self-sacrificial love to the unreasonable grace of God. And so when we're confronted by the unreasonableness of Jesus, we have to learn to take both sides. The Gospels do not offer up the option of accepting the unreasonable love of Jesus while dismissing his unreasonable demandingness. It's precisely his love which seeks to free us and to bless us that calls us out of a life of self-deception and into the freedom of giving our lives away for his sake. T.S. Eliot once described this kind of life as a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. It's in this way that Jesus seeks to reform our hearts from the gravitational pull of the self inward and to move outward in love. Let me conclude with a quote from 
that famous Narnian theologian, Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver says about Aslan, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What we see in the unreasonableness of Jesus is simply the wildness of God. It is he who is truly dangerous in the best sense. Not safe, but good. And our lives depend on that fundamental truth. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, we do give you thanks for the beauty of this day and for the beauty of all that you have made uh, for your glory out of your imagination and as a gift to us. We give you thanks for uh, your presence uh, with us in your grace, for your word and its truth. And we pray for your spirit to open our hearts that we may wrestle with uh, your unreasonable grace um, as it comes to us and offers us life. We give you thanks for this day. We pray for your blessing on our community here on the mountain. Amen. You're dismissed. Please stand. Praise God. Peace.